Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. This week, as Russia looks increasingly isolated over Syria, Vladimir Putin faces down a rapidly swelling protest movement at home. In the big cities across Russia, there is a growing sense of disillusionment. Certainly when our correspondents here have travelled, they've met with that. Xi Jinping, the man widely expected to be China's next president, visits Washington. I don't think there's any expectation that there's going to be any real business done on this trip. But in terms of getting to know the guy who's going to be running China for the next decade, this is very important. And tensions mount ahead of the EU-China summit following a row over the emissions trading scheme. It couldn't be stranger at the moment that Europe is going to China to get money and ask for help. Uh, they're trying to impose this on Chinese airlines. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. As the protest movement gathers pace in Russia, with tens of thousands taking to the streets over the weekend, how will Vladimir Putin deal with the threat? And is Russia losing legitimacy on the international stage following its handling of Syria? In the studio with me is Neil Buckley, the FT's East Europe editor, and joining us on the line is our correspondent in Moscow, Catherine Belton. Catherine, I was in Moscow for those street protests over the weekend, as were you, and it was all very impressive and quite exciting. But what are we to to make of it? Do you think this protest movement really has endurance and strength? I think so, yes. I think the fact that this was the third demonstration and it drew actually apparently more people than the the previous two after a month's break, certainly the expectation was that there would be a smaller turnout. It It was very cold. It was minus 20, but still people came. And I think there's a sense that the whole, the mood is, is, it's certainly directed against Putin now, and now that elections are coming up, that he's going to be re-elected. I think this protest movement will continue, and he's going to have to deal with it in some way. Neil, it seems to me that Putin's response is rather uncertain so far. How do you read it? I think he's uh, uh, groping for a response at the moment. Um, they are making some uh, concessions uh, in terms of uh, introducing some more freedom into the political system. Um, but beyond that, uh, he has proven very reluctant to uh, engage directly with the protesters. And I think really they're focused on the presidential election in a few weeks' time and making sure that, uh, that Putin gets back safely into the presidency. And then I think we will see the response uh, evolve from that point onwards. And Catherine, do you think the response is, to put it crudely, likely to be a crackdown or is it going to be more subtle than that? I think that's just the biggest question. People don't know. I think Putin has been making some signs that he would like to sort of come to an understanding with these protesters. He wrote an article about democracy this week, which was rather unexpected, and he tried to sort of 
make overtures to this new generation of internet bloggers saying that we're going to include you in decision making and so on but no one really believes what he writes so because of everything that he's done over his time in power hasn't really opened the doors for greater participation by the people in, in government he's just consolidated power in his own hands so I think it's really a question whether he can uh, do anything to address the protesters' complaints. And a lot of people think and they fear that actually his, his mindset is stuck um, in, a, in a period of a decade ago that he still thinks in terms of, of how things were in the 90s, that democracy means chaos, it means ruled by oligarchs, um, it means Russia is weakened uh, to foreign powers and, and so on. And I think the danger is that after this kind of uh, period in the run-up to the election where he's anxious not to rock the boat too much, people fear that afterwards he, he could crack down, he could start throwing people in jail. But obviously that's also a risk for Putin because if he does that, then he's going to stir the protesters even more. So we just don't know. Neil, there, there are all these parallels that people have made between what's going on in Russia and the Moscow Spring. There were banners in the, in the crowds equating Mubarak and, and Putin. Uh, and indeed, Putin himself sort of inferred there was a connection when he talked about a Western plot to destabilize Russia and the use of civil society and so on. What do you think of those analogies? Is there anything in them? There are some parallels uh, between the Arab Spring and uh, what's happening in Russia, but I, I, I think we shouldn't take that analogy too far. Certainly in both uh, cases you had a middle class uh, that has got very disillusioned with the powers that be. But my sense is in places like Egypt, for example, quite a lot of the uh, rural poor population um, also backed uh, the protests. They didn't necessarily want the same things uh, in, in terms of, of how the political system would develop uh, in the future as uh, uh, the more middle-class demonstrators in Cairo, but they were so fed up with their lives and their standard of living and the perception of corruption uh, at the top that they backed these protests. My sense in Russia is there's quite a large part of the Russian population that has not yet turned against Putin. If you go outside the big cities uh, to the rural areas, smaller towns, there are still quite a lot of people who think Putin is uh, is the best man to run the country. They've not been presented with any alternative. And they are not uh, living in the kind of poverty and desperation that um, that some of those in the Arab world and in Egypt are. Catherine, I guess that's the key question, isn't it? How deeply does this disillusionment run? Is it just a kind of a Moscow, St. Petersburg, middle class thing? Or is there any evidence of a wider disillusionment as far as you can see? I think um, I think it is outside Moscow and St. Petersburg, but probably it's not as, as concentrated as it is in, in these two main cities. But you do get a sense in the big cities across Russia, there is a growing sense of disillusionment. Certainly when our correspondents here have travelled, they've met with that. And we also saw the start of this open outbreak of disillusionment with Putin actually began outside Moscow, I think in Chelyabinsk, which is just on the way to Siberia, where people there did begin whistling and booing at the Kremlin ruling party and at Putin. I think that's absolutely true, but but I would say that uh, if, if you perhaps go to some smaller cities, even Chelyabinsk is a city of a million people, 
um, Yekaterinburg, where we saw the, pro the protest uh, in, in favor of Putin the other week, rather, rather uh, lackluster affair. That, that, that's a, a million-plus city as well. But I think if you go into the smaller towns, into rural areas where people are very dependent on the state, the kind of cities where there's one enterprise uh, employing people, often propped up by the state, then I think in those places they, 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 they are quite reliant on the current, uh, the current regime. Neil, final question. Russia's not just facing this internal big question. It's also under enormous pressure internationally because of the veto, the Syrian resolution. Is there some connection between uh, Russia's stance on uh, Syria and its concerns about domestic upheaval, or is this pure geopolitics? I think there is a connection. I certainly wouldn't say it's the sole reason for Russia's stance on Syria, but I think Russia has watched with increasing unease uh, in recent years what it feels is, is, is the push by the US and its allies to promote democracy in lots of different places on the borders of, uh, of Russia itself in the former Soviet Union, now, now in the Middle East. Um, they believe that this is misguided, that democracy will not take root in a lot of these places because the social conditions are not right. Um, but also, of course, they do see this as a threat to their own uh, regime and the, the, the system that they operate themselves. But in the case of Syria, for example, Syria is an, is an important ally for Russia. It is a place where they have a naval base. They have commercial interests there. Um, and they believe that it is wrong to try and effect regime change from the outside, which is what uh, they see uh, the US and its allies as, as, as uh, in essence, attempting to do. Neil Buckley and Catherine Belton in Moscow, thank you both very much. This week, Xi Jinping, widely expected to succeed Hu Jintao as China's president, will visit Washington. His trip will be closely watched for signs of his approach to foreign policy. Joining me on the line from Washington is the FT's US diplomatic correspondent, Jeff Dyer, and our Beijing bureau chief, Jamil Andalini. Jamil, is there much interest and expectation in China surrounding this visit? And does anybody think that we're really going to hear anything significant about what a Xi Jinping presidency might mean for U.S.-Chinese relations? No, I think the main point of this trip is uh, that he's here presidential and uh, general party secretary-like. There's going to be no breakthroughs, no policy. We don't expect any sort of policy announcements. We just expect him to smile for the cameras and to do a bit of glad-handing and look like a statesman. There has been, I gather, though, some anxiety in, in China about this so-called U.S. pivot to Asia and whether this is a kind of cover for a policy of containment of China. What do you think? Uh, absolutely, that's how it's seen in China. Uh, in some ways, uh, it's a vindication that China has now made it and is now a very, very important country on the world stage, uh, you know, rising superpower. But, of course, in China, there's a lot of angst about whether the Americans are going to pick up more military encirclement, possibly even provoke confrontation. So, yeah, definitely there's, there's concerns about it. But this is not what this trip is about, really. This trip is about him looking important. Jeff, uh, are people in Washington, at least in the policy circles, are they watching this trip with great interest, or is it just a routine visit? Uh, I think it's a huge amount of interest in Washington because here is a guy who who in all likelihood will be the, the leader of China for the next decade. Um, and everyone here understands that uh, U.S.-China relations are going to be, if not the most important aspect of international politics, and certainly one of the most important aspects of international politics for the next decade. And here's the guy who's going to be running China. So there's a lot of interest in just seeing how he behaves, how he handles himself. You know, we'll, we see 
it gives any any inklings at all of his attitude towards the U.S. is going to be a huge amount of interest. At the same time, people understand that this is a guy who who is the vice president. He's not the president yet. He's not the leader of the party yet. And he, if he did try to actually negotiate or make any big decisions, he would not only be usurping President Hu Jintao, he'd also be opening himself up to criticism back home that he was making compromises in some shape or form. So I don't think there's any expectation that there's going to be any real business done on this trip. But in terms of getting to know the guy who's going to be running China for the next decade, this is very important. And how is China playing in the U.S. presidential election? Because it's my impression from the other side of the Atlantic that perhaps predictably, but both uh, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, the two likely candidates, are doing a bit of China bashing. There is a little bit of China bashing in the background, but I, I wouldn't overstate it. Um, I think you know, every election cycle for the last decade, there has been this prediction that China is going to become this big issue, and it never really quite happened. And so while Mitt Romney has had a go about China with a currency issue, and he has actually been talking interestingly about shipbuilding and the importance of shipbuilding and sort of military posture in Asia, which is quite a as a, a very specific thing he's been talking about. Apart from that, it hasn't really been a, a, a huge issue so far on things like Iran and Israel, uh, even the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have been much more prominent in the Republican debate than China really has been. Uh, Jeff, finally, what's your take on this famous pivot to Asia? Are the Chinese right to suspect that it's a code word for containment? I think containment is too far, but absolutely China is the reason why this is happening. Um, uh, it's perfectly legitimate for the U.S. to take steps to you know, face up to the reality of China's rising military power. And the fact that lots of countries in Asia are, are calling on the U.S. to get more involved in the region and to find some way to balance China's power, that's all perfectly legitimate. The question, I think, for both governments is how they do this without sparking an arms race. How does this, how does this happen without it becoming a cycle of response and counter-response and new investments in military capacity that becomes an arms race? The Americans will say we're doing this because China has behaved more aggressively uh, in, our, in the region in the last three years, and the Chinese will say we're just, we're investing in our military because you know America is, is tries to dominate the region, and we think that we have to defend our interests. And so there is this potential cycle of reaction and counteraction that could eventually develop into some a sort of arms race, and that's the most worrying thing. Not necessarily the specific things that the U.S. is doing now, but the, the dynamic that it could set off. Jeff Dyer in Washington, thank you very much. And thank you also very much to Jamil Andalini in a taxi in Beijing. Thanks a lot. Meanwhile, as Xi Jinping is in Washington, Beijing will host an EU-China summit this week against the backdrop of a fierce row over China's non-compliance with the emissions trading scheme that the European Union has set up and as Europe seeks more help from China for the troubled Eurozone. Joining me on the line from Brussels is our Brussels correspondent, Josh Chaffin. Hi, Gideon. Josh, EU-China summits, they come, they go. Does this one actually matter? Well, the, I think the, the atmosphere around it, I think most of them recently in particular have been pretty disappointing. The last one in particular really ended in, in a bit of a huff. Um, I think this one is interesting in particular because of this dynamic of Europe going to uh, China hat in hand, hoping to get more resources to deal with the financial crisis. So I think that adds a, a kind of froth uh, dimension. And then, as usual, there are some trade uh, irritations kind of bubbling along on both sides. And I think that could also be um, add a kind of element of drama. It's kind of humiliating for the Europeans, isn't it, to be sort of begging the Chinese for money? And is there any sign the Chinese are actually going to play ball and write a large check? No, it's 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 um it's really terrible from the Europeans' perspective because 
there has been such kind of expectation built up about what China could do with its massive pile of reserves. And yet the Chinese have periodically made comments that they were interested in helping out or considering taking a look at it. But from what we're told, the Japanese so far have actually are the ones who have actually gone in and, and, and bought bonds and been much more supportive. The Chinese have have, uh, you know, their support has actually been pretty minimal. Um, and I think the feeling here is that anything that they do do will, will come with strings attached. And meanwhile, the Europeans, as well as sort of getting the begging bowl out, are also trying to get tough on the emissions trading scheme. Tell us about uh, that, Rao. What's it about? And, and surely Europe's in a pretty weak position. Well, it's a, a strange situation because, as you said, Europe is uh, is in a very weak uh, state, and its credibility, I think, with the euro crisis has really diminished globally. And yet, you know, on the other kind of uh, this other part of the Commission where they work on environment policy, they're still very convinced that they have a system that the entire world should emulate and even be roped into. Um, so this is the carbon market, and it's designed to reduce emissions, and Europe has become very frustrated that the global airline industry hasn't come up with its own model to reduce its emissions. So uh, they have decided that as of uh, last month, all airlines that take off or land in Europe will have to be part of the system. And uh, th- that you know, smacks to China and the U.S. and, and really just about everyone else as a, uh, a move to tax foreign airlines operating in international airspace. So they've said it's one thing if you're doing this just inside of uh, Europe, but this is sort of extraterritorial, the way that you're applying it. And it it couldn't be stranger at a moment that Europe is going to China to get money and ask for help. Uh, They're trying to impose this on Chinese airlines. And China last week was, uh, or earlier this week rather, was very forceful in in saying that it would absolutely bar its airlines from, from taking part. So last question, I mean, who do you think is going to come out on top on that particular dispute? It doesn't sound like the Europeans have much hope. It's very difficult that they've put so much into this system and they've been so public about refusing to back down. On the other hand, just about every other major nation is arrayed against them. Uh, it almost reminds me a little bit of Copenhagen, where Europe you know, became very isolated in its stance on climate policy. There are a couple elements in the law that allow for a a bit of a fudge. And I think the hope is that they can come up with something. But, you know, at least as of this week, I think the language on both sides has been pretty tough. So it'll be uh, interesting to see how how they finesse that. Thanks very much indeed, Josh. That was Josh Chaffin in Brussels. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Neil Buckley here in the studio in London, to Catherine Belton in Moscow, Jeff Dyer in Washington, Jamil Andalini in Beijing, and Josh Chaffin in Brussels. World Weekly is produced by Martin Starber. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save 